right, yes. Welcome to 514 Church. You guys doing okay today? You guys all right? Uh, welcome to everybody that's watching online. Uh, a famous pastor, podcaster, um, preacher named Kerry Newhoff said that every time a pastor does a series on conflict that he can rest assured that he's probably going to have a conflict with his wife that week. And I heard that years ago. And so because I knew about it, I like prepared and made sure that it happened, but it wasn't that bad. It was only about um, a light switch. It didn't get worse than that. But I mean, it was one of those things where the light switch you know, it became a big deal because it's like it mattered to me, and of course, I just couldn't let it go because, you know, it's a light switch. So, uh, you know, just full transparency, like, I need a round of applause because I'm going to share that, like, I got in a fight with my wife over a light switch, and none of you are doing that. So, like, give me a round of applause. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Now you all get to, like, know that, like, at a baseline, we all struggle with the same things, and we can all journey together. But, yeah, I, I've told my wife for years that in our kitchen, there are some lights over the island, um, which actually, after this whole fight, is where I live now on the island. Um, but, actually, that there's lights over the island, and those are the lights that I like on in the morning because I don't like overhead lighting. Anybody, can I get an Amen from anybody. Overhead lighting, it bothers my eyes, it makes me uncomfortable, and um, uh, I, honestly, it gives me headaches. Like, I don't, I, it just, like, bothers me, especially in the morning, like, slowly opening my eyes. So I like indirect light, you know, it has to be, like, a warm glow, and I'm sure the reason that I want it to be so warm and so comforting, I'm sure there's some other major problem in me for that, reason for that, but nonetheless, so after a couple of years of, like, her asking, like, you like the, the, Overhead lights or the island lights? I tell her I like the island lights, island lights. Um, she woke up uh, about a week ago, and um, she, of course, had a normal night. Like, you know, like the dog had diarrhea, and the kids were sick, and they got into our bed, and she had worked late the night before, and, you know, like her business is growing, and she's stressed out. So, you know, like a normal night. And so I expected her to be at top peak performance, especially in our engagement the next morning. And uh, she, like, was going over the light switch, and she's like, she's like, so, oh, I'm sorry, which ones do you like better, these ones or this ones? And it was, like, after two years of her, me telling her, and basically I responded perfectly with, the middle ones, the middle ones, I like the middle ones. And she's like, okay, don't overreact. And basically I handled it perfectly, and I shut down for three days, and, like, we haven't talked about it yet. I'm just kidding. No, we actually talked about it. And, of course, it was like, you know, hours later, and I, I kind of went into this thing, and we talked about the light, and, like, why don't you know the light? And we had this whole conversation about the light, and it was a conflict. And, of course, it, like, led to other things because it was obviously not about the light. And that's what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about conflict, and that's a silly thing. And, of course, in that situation, I was right and she was wrong, which is an easy example. Um, honestly, like, she should have known, and we had talked about it. She should show that she cares of which ones I care about, and I shouldn't have reacted that way, and I shouldn't be that sensitive and that needy. And, you know, we talked about it, and there's, you know, way more to it than that, way more to it than that. But the bottom line is, is that a conflict like that, and actually any conflict in your life, marriage, conflict between your parents, you and your parents, you and your friends, uh, coworkers, best friends, 
is that whatever that conflict is, whatever you make it about is actually not what it's about. It's like your fight is, is not about the light. It's not. It's not about the light switch. It's not about that thing. There's actually something else going on. And actually what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks is we're going to talk about relationships, and we're going to talk about fighting in conflict and how important it is to understand it and to handle it a certain way. And not just because um, it, it makes things better, but it's ba- actually handling conflict and doing it the right way is the difference between um, a bad life and a good life. And I'm going to show you that today, and then we're going to unpack the different things, and we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say. But the, the goal and the kind of the outlook of this series is this. We're going to be rewriting the goal and the rules of fighting in all relationships. So I will be talking about some marriage stuff because that's a pivotal relationship that so many of us are, are in. But uh, all of these ideas... They transcend that. They transcend into your work life. They transcend into your, your relationship with your kids. All relationships, what we're going to be talking about, uh, this applies to. And so I don't want anyone to, to check out. We're going to look at everything. We're going to talk about all these different ideas. And you're going to be able to apply it to all the different areas of your life. And in order for us to do that and do it well, we're going to start off by looking at the first fight, the very first fight in history. And we're going to do that by looking in the scriptures, we're going to open up our Bibles. Go ahead, if you have your Bible, and open it up to Genesis chapter 3, which for me is page 2. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to page 2. If you don't have your Bible, um, then we're going to put these uh, scriptures up on the screen. And I want to encourage everybody, and you, you're welcome to bring it up on your phone. I'm reading the NIV. But we do want to encourage everyone to bring their Bibles to church and to start actually taking time daily, weekly to read your physical printed Bible. Um, I, I had an instinct that this needs to happen, that we need to be reading our Bibles. And my instinct was that when I'm on my phone reading my Bible, that there's so much going on on the phone that it can distract me from what it is that I'm trying to engage in. Um, interestingly enough, John sent me an article a week later that a study came out that showed that when we read the Bible on our phones, that we actually are having a harder time comprehending it, and that we actually are not engaging in deep level reading where we actually learn and it changes our lives because we've learned to engage information on our phones in basically short little sentences instead of in comprehending full ideas, paragraphs, and pages. And so for us to understand the scriptures, we need to do a deep level of reading, we need to read it more, we need to read it in context and not just a tweet of scripture. We need to read um, a whole page of scripture. And so this is a very healthy thing in the context that we live in. If we want our lives to change, if we believe the scriptures are the word of God, then for us to engage it and learn, we got to open it up and read a whole page um, and read the, the chapters before and the chapters afterward and, and, and dig into it. But we're going to look at the first fight. This is in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. It's on there or follow along. Here it is. Uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now interestingly there we see that. Even Eve, having been told by God not to eat the fruit, adds a layer 
of rules. Maybe you didn't notice this before, but she, she adds that God said not to eat it and not even to touch it. Go back and look at the original command. He doesn't do that. He didn't say you don't have to touch it. There's a whole commentary on legalism and self-righteousness and adding things to what God has for us in order to make ourselves feel holy. It's a whole subcategory of ideas that are just in there. Um, but that's not what we're going to talk about. Uh, you will not surely die, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's not, again, not what we're talking about today directly, but that passage is a critical passage in the narrative of humanity. What we have is the serpent enticing humans, saying that if you eat this, you will be like God, and because it looked good and because of what it offered them, what they thought it offered them, the ability to be like God, that's why she goes on and eats it. Ultimately, this is a commentary of the truth that is in all of our lives, that we all live in this position where we are deciding every single day whether or not we're going to do what God told us to do or we're going to do what we want to do, which is ultimately a way of us saying we're going to be our own gods. We're going to be like God. I'm not going to be under authority. I'm the authority. I'm not going to do what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do and ultimately be God on my own, and therefore I don't need God. It's a major idea. When the woman saw, verse 6, that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Another thing, just, just as I'm reading this, and there's so many great things in this passage here, um, in the book of 1 John, John, who was a, a, a follower of Christ on earth, a contemporary, said, do not lust after the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. He unpacks, those are the things about the fruit. And he says, don't go after stuff that just entices you, that just tempts you. Don't, don't do after that. That will lead to destruction. Don't go after wanting to be God. Don't go after stuff that's just shiny. Don't go after stuff that makes you feel more prideful. Don't go after all that stuff. He, he unpacks that in his own way. It's the story of humanity um, and our downfall from the very, be very beginning. She took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So here's what I want to focus on first. Some of you are laughing, and that's good because it's, it's funny, but it's actually tragic what we just read. And there's a lot here, but what this man does is as soon as God shows up, he turns the entire focus of what just happened away from himself and actually has the audacity, imagine this, to blame the problem that took place, somehow he could see himself differently after he ate, he blames the problem, he 
blames his now ability to see himself. He blames the change that took place. He blames it on who? God. I mean, the first fight in the history of humanity is God giving people everything they can need and more, telling them that they can't have one thing, them being enticed to become like God, taking the bait, therefore experiencing consequences of change, and as soon as God sees them, they blame him for it. They blame him for it. So the first fight is the blame game. It's the blame game. And you may go, I don't play the blame game. You actually do. We all do this all the time. This is the essence of conflict among people. There's different types of conflict. There's different reasons that things happen. But when we start to unpack what's happening when we go after somebody or when there's conflict, we can see that it kind of lives in this ethos of the blame game. Now, I can, I can share story after story of the blame game with you like that I experience as a dad. I mean, as a dad, I get a front row seat to the most ridiculous conversations that sound like I'm living with little like, like little like 10% of actual humans. They're like aliens from another like world that don't know how to like live or breathe and they're called children. And I get to experience them. Literally the other day, I was in one room and Jet, our, our second, um, we have three, and our, he came into the room and he was crying, tears coming down his face, and I said, what is wrong, what is going on? And he goes, Reddy hit me. Now his little sister hit him, and I'm partially proud of that, but it's not good, not, that's off the record. I hope they don't, they're not here, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, she hit him. So I went in, and there's Redding sitting on a couch. She has this scowl on her face. And I said to her, these are words that were actually spoken. I said, why did you hit him? She said, because he was annoying me. Blame game. She's sitting there doing something. And so he started to make some noise or do something. So she just hauled off and smacked him in the face. And according to her, the reason that he got hurt was his fault. I mean, she's like, she literally like started to unpack like, if he would have been quiet, I wouldn't have hit him. Blame game. This is what we, this is what little kids do. This, this is another one. My wife and I, every year we go to Hilton Head, and it's a production, you can imagine, with little kids. And we fly down there, we do the whole like Allegiant Air thing, and, and, and we fly to Savannah, which is an hour away from Hilton Head, and we have to rent a car. And it's a whole production, you know, to get kids, get everything they need, what they need in their little bags, their little backpacks, their little iPads, their clothes, pack everything, get it, you know, to the airport, get them through security, get them on a plane. I mean, these are little kids, you know. And then we go, we get a get in the the rental car and drive for an hour, get to the condo, unpack everything after having gone to the grocery store, get them into their rooms, get them settled. The next day, take them down to the beach, which is a major production, which, side comment, bleh, like the beach, all the activity, like the condo we go to is on the beach, and it's still just like this whole production. I'm like sweating by the time I get there. And you need know, to take the kids there, and they have this whole thing, and then, like, one day it was, like, raining half the day. And so then the next day we go to the pool, and that's, like, a whole production. 
That's a whole production. So they were a little upset because they only got a little bit of time outside. The next day we go to the pool, the whole production, we've come, you know, states away, flown to get there, put on all this time, all this energy, all, energy, all these resources, and then two, two of the kids get in a fight. The two boys get into a fight. They get in this big scuffle. Someone gets really upset, and I have to se separate them. So I take my oldest over, and he's really upset. He's really frustrated. Something broke out. I didn't quite see it, but someone got whacked in the face with a noodle. I don't know. Something crazy happened. And I'm like, what's going on? Why is this happening? What's going on with you? And he said these words to me. Well, if we wouldn't have come here in the first place. It's like he literally, he, he, he turned the fight he just had in the pool that his mom and I spent Lots of money, lots of time, lots of resources to give them this great experience. The fact that they got in a fight suddenly became my fault. What a jerk. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's funny about that is, as is, is silly as it is, this is exactly what we all do. The reason why it's ironic and, and silly is because when, when a kid says it, that's what we, we, stick, we step back and we go, they're saying that because they're a child. But honestly, like, when you get into, like, emotional conflict with your spouse, with a coworker, with a friend, basically there's just euphemistic ways of saying all the same things. Well, you know, I would have been fine with Carl, except Carl was, you know, he showed up and opened the door and made such a loud noise that I had to s submit a report about his, you know, disruption of the office. He messed it up. He did it. Blame game. We do this. We do this with every. We, I want you to start to think about your, your conflicts. Literally, like what, like what you are experiencing in life in, in terms of your conflicts. How much of them are something happens to you that's uncomfortable to you that you don't like, and ultimately the reason you're frustrated is because someone else did something, and if someone would put someone in their place, then we wouldn't have this problem. We all do this. And here's the thing, is like the, the scripture shows that the first conflict was this blame game, and then ultimately that in the blame game there's these roots of conflict and we have to figure this out. And one of the things that's so important for us to understand as we come to church is that the scriptures tell us two fundamental ideas about humanity. One of them is talked about more. One of them in the last hundred years has been talked about uh, very profoundly, and that is, is that people are broken. We're broken. And we just read the story in Genesis chapter 3 that we're broken, that we, we have sin in our lives. We fall short of the glory of God, not just in how we behave or who we are, but in our decisions, our thinking, our makeup, all of it. And that all the world around us has been corrupted by the brokenness that was started by sin and that ultimately there's this mess. But the first part, which is more important, I believe, is God's original design is that all humans are beautiful. So the truth about humanity is that we're all beautiful, made in the image of God. We are God's little children designed to look like him, designed to worship him, to, designed to be extensions of him, designed to be reflections of him in the world. And at the same time, because of sin and brokenness, we are broken. And those two things exist simultaneously. And it's very important to know that the scriptures teach that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. That God loves you. That, that you're beautiful. That you reflect his image. That that thumbprint that you have, that's you. You're uniquely designed. And that even those of us in Christ, 
who resurrect after death, we will still be these same people. But what's going to happen is the bad's going to go away. And what was beautiful about us is just going to be personified and magnified and solidified in the resurrection. And so there's not this idea that everything about us needs to be wiped away and destroyed and there's nothing good. There's so much good that it was worth redeeming. There's so much good that Jesus was was willing to pay a price to forgive us of our sins, to free us from the consequences. So we live in this world where we have to understand that the reason for our conflict with each other exists because of this theology of brokenness that we all have. When you start to let that, like, just sit in your life, just sit in your heart, what it starts to do is it methodically and over time starts to deteriorate the possibility of this blame game. Because you know I'm broken, they're broken, we're all broken. There's problems in the world. There's problems with us physically. There's problems with us socially. There's just problems with the way we think and act because things are not as they ought to be. When we get there, it starts to level the playing field for the way we see things. It starts to help us navigate through conflict. The idea of our brokenness is is taught in a theological system called total depravity. This is the idea that we are so broken and our sin separates us from God, that we have absolutely no ability to fix our own problem. And that our problem supersedes and extends itself into every area of our life. And so ultimately, when we understand that we are broken, we understand that we need God in order to fix us, it starts to level the playing field for the blame game. I'm broken, they're broken, we're all broken. I need God, they need God, we need God. Things need to get better here. Mark Twain talked about it this way. I love this quote. He said, when we remember that we are all mad or we're all broken or we're all crazy or we're all messed up, the mysteries disappear and life stands explained. So you, you, when, you, when you start to understand the worldview that this shows us, start to look at people and go, man, the reason for the brokenness, the reason for the blame game, I'm broken, they're broken. The reason for this mess, this thing is messed up. What other question do we have? You want to know why people get sick? We're all mad. Things are broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You want to know why that's so painful? Because we're all beautiful and that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we all understand that there's a brokenness that's not supposed to be there, the disparity between what God has called us to and what he desires for us and what actually is, there's the space that conflict exists. There's the space that brokenness exists. There's the space that sadness exists. So we all do this blame game. We all push our problems onto somebody else, and that causes conflict. But why? Why do we fight? Like, why, do, why does it turn into conflict? We're dispositioned with a brokenness. What does it turn into conflict? Why does it become this broken down thing? What is it that's behind that? What's the motivation? What are humans all about? What are they looking for? What's, what's the underlying issue here? And We're going to talk about a couple different people, and one of them we're going to talk about is a genius and a master of relationship, and his name is John Gottman. And this man has studied relationships. He studied marriages for years and years and years, 40 years. He's done studies, systematic studies of how couples interact, and specifically what causes conflict among people in close relationship, marriage partners, best friends. And what he has found in his research is this. 
Most conflicts happen because of failed bids for connection. Most conflicts happen in a relationship because of failed bids for connection. Now, there's lots of reasons that people have conflict in relationships. Circumstances, there might even be some things of illness or a personality disorder or things that are just out of whack, out of kilter, that don't necessarily fall into this type of normative relationship. But for, for all intents and purposes, when all things are equal, what is causing conflict among humans is this failed bid for connection. Now, here's what a bid for connection is. A bid for connection is anytime I to a friend, spouse, child, actually extend just an invitation to engage. Just a simple invitation to engage. So if I say, hey, will you pass the chips? That's a bid for connection. When I, if I say, I was talking to Ryan after the service, he's like, if I'm sitting out in my kitchen, I say, oh, did you see that, that red bird? Did you see the cardinal out there? That's a bid for connection. And ultimately, a bid for connection is me saying, I want to talk to you. I want to connect with you. I want to I have a conversation with you. I want to overlap our interests. I want to share something with you. And I want you to say something that complements that or enhances that or brings more life to that, which is ultimately the essence of friendship, is mutual connection, laughing at the same things, crying at the same things, feeling like you two are meant to be. That's friendship. That's relationship. And so every time we just interact, hey, would you pass the salt? Hey, do you want to go out tomorrow night? That is a positive connection. And when, when they're failed, it's just when the person sees them as a thing and doesn't understand that they're a bid for connection and turns it away. It sounds silly when you hear this, but this is what we all do. And, and actually, I, in between services, I thought about this. This can't be overstated because a lot of us that have grown up in Christian homes, we have some sense of, like, treating each other with kindness, and maybe we learn to do that even if it's not genuine. But I just happen to know that so many of us, even those of us that grew up in the church, we're very rude to one another. We're very rude. So if someone says, hey, will you pass the chicken, I mean, I think 50% of the time that doesn't go well. Get it yourself. That is a failed bid for connection. Hey, do you want to like, look at the red bird? Huh? Why do I want to look at the red bird? Well, now you don't because it flew away, jerk. Failed bid. This is so important, it's incredible. Actually, what this is trying to do and what John Gottman is trying to show us is that we all are wired for this type of connection and that every little interaction can build up to either a surplus of connectivity or a kind of a detriment of connectivity. And that people want connectivity, we want to engage one another, and if we get to the place where we don't feel we're connecting with the people around us, it causes conflict. Isn't that interesting? In fact, it's so profound and so important, he studied 130 married couples, and here's what he found. The healthy couples turn towards their partner's bids for connection 80% of the time. 80% of the time, the couples that were healthy, that stayed married, when someone said, pass the chips, when someone said, look at the bird, when someone said, hey, what do you think about what we saw in the news, or what did you think about what Janet said, or whatever, and they returned with a positive, 
engagement. They connected around even a small issue that 80%, 86% of the healthy couples did that. And conversely, they found that the divorced couples, which um, a third of these couples got divorced, turned towards the bid only a third of the time. A third of the time. That means that two-thirds of the time, when one person just said, pass the chips, the response was negative. Ultimately, what this teaches us is that the more we connect with each other in safe and meaningful ways, the less we fight. We bid for connection. Connection is what we live for. It's what we want. It's what makes us tick. And when we don't have it, it causes a, a void. And then that void turns into a fight. And the fight is not about the light. You see, my story that I opened up with is a story of, I, I, don't, I, I don't, you know, having the lights on one way or the other is so much smaller compared to me wanting to believe my wife cares which lights I have I want on. The way I respond to her, which I did very, very poorly, is way more important than the topic at hand. And so as we start to move into what it looks like to connect, we're going to find that those differences make all the difference in terms of conflict and relationship. And ultimately, we have a God who wants a connection with us. And our most important broken connection is with God. You see, all of us have brokenness in our relationships. We all have conflict in our relationships. And ultimately, what you're going to see from the scriptures is that for us to have a better relationship with the people around us, the better our relationship with God is, the better our relationships with others can be. And ultimately, this should scare us. We, we should want to know how it, it can be that we can take all of our relationships and turn them into happy and healthy relationships. And I'm telling you that for us, in order to actually have happy and healthy relationships, we have got to fix our relationship with God. And so what that looks like is this. First and foremost, understanding that God loves you, that you are beautiful, that you are broken, and you have to engage Jesus Christ. You have to start to look at Jesus Christ as an offering to save you from your brokenness, to save you from the consequences of death, that his resurrection is just, he's the trailblazer. He's the first fruits of anyone that follows him, they become resurrected. Ultimately, the resurrection of God is, is through his son, through Jesus, is an offering to you to overcome death by the power of God and his gift. And he wants to forgive you of your sins. This is why he died on the cross to wipe away your sins, to shed his blood, to eclipse your sin, to wipe them away. And so that right there, that sin and brokenness and death, that represents a broken relationship. When you engage Jesus, the relationship is then mended. It's as if we're brought as orphans back into the family of God. So you have to choose that. You have to choose that. You have to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, what you have to do is you have to follow Jesus daily so that it doesn't just become a, a situation some Christians might, might think that you accept Jesus Christ and therefore everything should be better and your relationships get better and your circumstances. No, it takes tons of work. It takes tons of fellowship and discipleship of crafting your life around the life of Jesus, around the words of Scripture, around what God has offered us and gives us as a path for living our lives. Because what we know 
is that conflict, conflict, when it's constant, that it ruins our lives. And so we need a relationship with God because if we don't get our relationship with God fixed, then our relationship with people around us won't get fixed. And our relationship with the people around us has to get fixed because research is showing that when we have damaged and difficult relationships with the people around us, it is literally destroying our lives. Literally destroying our lives. Bad relationships with heavy conflict destroys us. Some of us are in that right now. You might be in a relationship. You might have a, you know, a, a spouse you're in a relationship with that's really bad, tons of conflict. You are not living a happy life right now. Some of us are in major conflict with our parents. We are not living a happy life right now. Some of us are in major conflict with our friends. And ultimately, a relationship with God can turn into the tools that we need to mend and start to heal the relationships with the people around us. And this has been studied and proven to be true. There's something I want to share with you called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it's one of the most profound studies of the human experience to date. It's unbelievable. What they did in this study, and you should go and read about it, is they took 724 men, half of them from Harvard, students at Harvard, and half of them from the poorest parts of Boston. And they studied their lives and they've been studying their lives for 75 years. 75 years they've been studying their lives. 60 of the original are still alive. And somewhere along the middle, they started to study, they studied their spouses, and they've already started to study their children. But the results of this study are profound, and they got these results through literally thousands and thousands and thousands of tests and interviews. What they would do is they would go into these people's homes, and they would sit down with them, they would take their blood, they would interview their family once or twice a year. Thousands and thousands of years, or not years, not thousands of years, of pages of research and studies were done over 75 years. And the big thing that they came away with is as they were looking at life and trying to figure out what it is that makes people happy in life. And, and ironically, what they did is they found guys that were from Harvard who, who came from a lot of means and, and money, and some of them went through losing all of their, kind of their wealth or their position, and some of them stayed happy because of what they found. And they also found certain guys that were from Boston and from the poorest parts of the world that actually elevated and, and made more money, and some of them were profoundly sad. And they found as they looked at all the different things that the core thing that made someone live a happy life was this. The clearest message from the 75-year study is that good relationships keep us happy, happier and healthier. The director of the program after 75 years now said this. He said that good relationships and then they go on to define what good relationships are, and they found three key ingredients to what makes up a good relationship. I wanna share this with you, it's, it's incredible. Three key lessons. The first one they found is that loneliness kills. Loneliness kills, that you need relationship. That social, uh, social relational connection is everything. Social and relational connection is everything. They actually found that loneliness and not having good relationships was lethal. That people who were addicted to drugs and alcohol, that the people that were lonely fared worse than them. 
that their quality of life, that their experience in life was worse than those addicted to some of the most lethal substances and, and patterns known to man. That people need relationship. That if you want to be happy, you have to have good relationships. The other thing they found, which really starts to like hone in or, or like focus in on what we're talking about and why this study I think is worth looking at is the quality not the quantity of relationships is what matters most. The quality of your relationship. Isn't that interesting? Say not quantity, not quantity. We live in a world that says more friends, more likes means a better life. We actually live in a world where we think that connecting with people through our phones as opposed to the people that are sitting next to us is more important. It's a very dangerous time to be living in the world we're living where we think that having more friends and being lightly connected with lots of people is more important than being healthy and connected to a few people. It is critical for us to start to look at our social media experiences, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is that we're into, and start to see that a life that is aimed at finding lots of different small connections is only hurting you. And that what we need to get back to is we need to focus on building and going deep in a couple relationships. In fact, when they talk about the quality of those relationships and how quantity is not important but quality, the, the qualifier for quality is this. High conflict relationships are bad for your health. So literally, as they looked at these people's lives, they found that people who had good relationships that lacked conflict were happy. They were healthy. These were the people who lived longer. Wow. Wow. Now, I don't want to infer only that having a happy life is the goal of life. It's not the goal. The goal of life, in my opinion, is to follow God, do whatever he says, and trust him with the results. To bring glory to God, to worship God with your whole being. But I believe in the human experience that God has given us the choice to live in a life of happiness, to live in a life of harmony, to do things his way or not. And all things being equal, we get the opportunity to fix the conflict in our life if we take it seriously. The third thing that they found is good relationships don't just protect our bodies. They protect our brains. So we're gonna talk about motivation for having healthy relationship, a motivation for not having that much conflict in your relationship. It actually is something that is going to give you better memory over the long haul. They found people that in their 80s who had someone they could count on had sharper memory than those who didn't. They went and they studied people in their 50s and they had good relationships and those people when they went back and studied, they had sharper memories than those who had a lack of healthy relationships. Now here's the thing about having a healthy relationship. Here's what it is that's so amazing about the Christian experience, the, 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 the faith that we get to live in and, and, and breathe and experience every single day. This is what's so amazing, is that God is offering to every single one of us the keys to having 
healthy relationship, the keys to minimizing conflict in our relationship, the keys to unlocking the blame game and not having our relationships with people be hampered by conflict and frustration all the time. He gives us those keys. In fact, every key, all the key ingredients of a healthy relationship are gifted to all of Christ's followers. You see, the, the Christian message is so incredible. God sends his son to die for us. He's the heaven and earth person, Jesus. He brings heaven to earth. He dies for us. He raises from the dead and says, if you follow me, one day you get to raise from the dead. Then he ascends into heaven, and then he sends his Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit of God to live and dwell in all of the followers of Christ. And with the Spirit of the living God, we have access to the seeds and the ingredients and the keys of living a healthy life. The scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit of God, that that the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the seeds of the Holy Spirit, that we're supposed to cultivate and grow and grind to become, those things are all of the things that research and data says are the keys to living a happy life. They're finding now in research and studying happiness and good relationships that all of the things that the Bible says that we need to exhibit and live out, that if we do those things, those are the things that make relationships work. I mean, the the scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit, that one of the things, just one of the things that it leads us to if we listen and we follow and we transform is this word here, gentleness. The Holy Spirit of God, its fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The scriptures teach us through Paul in the book of Ephesians that we are supposed to speak to everybody in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and that all of our speech is supposed to be grace-filled and seasoned with salt so that it's supposed to give a gift of grace to all those that listen, to all those that hear. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Let none of it, but have all your speech be seasoned with salt so that it can give grace to those who hear. You see, salting your speech is a way of being gentle. The Bible teaches us that in the context of Ephesians where he talks about marriages and relationships that we need to, because of the Holy Spirit, have gentleness in the way we speak. What's so amazing about that is that research that they're doing right now, that John Gottman is doing, that Harvard is doing, that all the brightest and most brilliant people in the world are doing, they're finding this. Research shows us that you can eliminate most of your conflict with a gentle startup. John Gottman says that if you, in your relationships, and they studied this and they found this to be true, if you engage in a conversation and you just soften the beginning of the conversation. You just soften your tone. You just soften what you say. You just, you just add some peace. You add some gentleness to it. That literally, it changes 90% of the conversation and makes it positive. Here's the thing that's so incredibly important about that, you guys, is that that is what it takes to make our relationships go well. And the only way that that's going to go well is if you give your life to Christ and he transforms you and gives you those key, key ingredients so you can start to actually be gentle. You see, you can fake gentleness for a minute. 
You can go to a meeting, you can act gentle. You can talk to certain people that you, you wanna impress and act gentle. But over the long haul, and the people who know you the most, if gentleness isn't a part of who you are because you've been transformed by the gift of God and the Holy Spirit, it's gonna make its way and it's gonna cause conflict. So I want you to consider this week, gentleness. How about a gentle startup? Those of us that are followers of Christ, see what happens. A gentle answer turns away wrath. See if when you're gentle that your conflict changes. And the last thing I want you to consider is this. Stop playing the blame game. Just stop playing it. Whenever there's conflict, and we're gonna unpack this more over the next couple of weeks, whenever there's conflict, instead of aiming at someone, instead of attacking someone, instead of making it someone else's fault, back up and ask what's going on in you. Ask what, what, what you did wrong. Ask where you went off. See, see what that does for you. And, and stop playing that game of, well, if they would have, if, if they wouldn't have done that, if they wouldn't have said that. And actually start exploring this. Explore the blame game. Maybe sit with your spouse and talk about your biggest conflict and say, how do we play the, how do we do the blame game? I mean, have a nice, gentle dialogue about the blame game and see what happens. See what happens when this becomes language for your interactions. Are you, are you blaming me? Students, do this with your parents. Whenever there's conflict, instead of blaming your context or blaming them, think through what's really going on here. Be smart. Don't engage the first fight in the history of the world and continue it on. Be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I just wanna land the plane with this. Imagine the first fight differently. Just imagine that fight, because really it's just, it's, it's an example, it's an opportunity to look at every single fight and see what God would have for us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We look at something, it's enticing. We think that we are more powerful than God. We, we think that we can do what we want and get away with it. Just like Adam and Eve, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now I just want you to think about that. Adam and Eve have done the one thing. They've been given everything they need and more. They have one thing they can't do. They do it. They do it for all the wrong reasons. It's a story of our lives. This is what we do. God walks through the garden and asks, where are you? What is that? That's a bid for connection. That's God wanting to connect with you. God wants to connect with you. That, that, that's, the, that's the picture hey, I want to connect with you, and if you turn back to my connection in a positive way, our relationship can be different. Our relationship could be solved. Our relationship could flourish. But imagine that. Imagine if they responded differently. Imagine if God comes walking through the, cool, the garden in the cool of the day. They're walking. Where are you? And they walk out. And they say, God, we, we did that thing. We did that thing that you told us not to do. And God, it's not your fault, it's our fault. We thought we knew better, we thought we could get away with it. We, we, we got enticed and we got tricked, but we didn't have to do it because you gave us everything. And we did the one thing. Just imagine the interaction. Knowing what we know of God, things could have maybe gone differently. I mean, things could have been better, things could have healed faster. 
So I just want to take a minute. I want to pray for us as we go through our, our weeks and, and through this month and we engage in the grind of life and the relationships that can be so taxing. And let's rewrite the rules, man. Let's make the goal of our lives, of our relationships, a healthy connection with one another and with God. Let's, let's pray for a second. God, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. I pray, God, that as we all play the blame game, God, that we would first and foremost not blame you. This is not your fault. There is brokenness in us that we brought upon ourselves. God, please forgive us for that and help us to see that and stop blaming you. And God, help us not to do that to others. Help us not to blame other people for the conflict and the brokenness inside of us, God. Help us to be gentle with one another. Help us to change the dynamic of our relationships. Help us to rewrite what it looks like to fight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 